We're nearing the end of our summer series called The Good Life, and this is based on the writings in 1 Peter by the Apostle Peter. And living the good life is how followers of Jesus live in a world that often feels like it's headed the other way from God. And it makes us, man, this world that we live in, uh, at best, we feel like we don't fit in. At worst, we often feel like it's out to get us. And the good life that Peter describes is one that we live It's living the resurrection life that we can only find through Jesus. It's the life that God always intended us to live, full of love, joy, peace, contentment, purpose, adventure. It's one full of meaningful relationships among family and friends. It's not just lived on our own. But it's also filled with many of the same struggles, many of the same challenges, many of the same temptations that everyone else's face, and everyone else's face. But when we experience this good life in Christ, it puts all the other hardships, all the other suffering that we may experience into perspective. And it's also one, you know, we talk about the good life, and we just automatically think in terms of individual. We think in terms of of me. That's just the cultural water that we swim in all the time. But the good life isn't just one of an individual life. The good life is one that's lived, one of the reasons it's so good is because we get to do it together in community with others who are experiencing the same life in Christ. And so at the close of this letter, the Apostle Peter leaves some instructions on how this collective group, the family of God, um, he leaves some instructions on how we can best survive and function together. And specifically, Peter turns his attention to leaders, leaders in the church, those who've been given the responsibility of looking after the spiritual welfare of those in the church, and recognizing that Peter's instructions apply to people like me, people like Pastor Angela, people like Pastor Mark, you know, they're pastors here, uh, but also to others in our congregation. Uh, that are in leadership positions, you know, it it might be directed at them, but because we're a unit, a family, it's important for all of us to kind of understand these dynamics. It'd be wise for our entire church family to do this together, understand it together. And so this morning, we're going to take a deep dive into Peter's instruction on how leaders and leadership works best in the local church. So let me read for you from 1 Peter chapter 5, Verses 1 through 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording over lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And in the same way, verse 5, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. It's a quote, I believe, from the book of Proverbs. Well, in the last few years, I've noticed a really trendy new leadership style emerging in the marketplace. It's called servant 
leadership, you may have noticed. Leadership gurus, you know, the people who make all the money, writing all of the best new books, uh, CEOs, all sorts of people are jumping on the bandwagon. And, you know, traditional leadership models, it's about, you know, kind of climbing to the, the top of the ladder or the top of the pyramid where all the power and control rests. Um, but servant leadership is different. It turns that pyramid upside down. It emphasizes sharing power and supporting the needs, the growth, the development of others first. Well, this, of course, is a New Testament concept. The business world has, I don't know if they realize it's a New Testament concept or, or, or where, how this, uh, the genesis of this idea came from, but they've borrowed from the New Testament. They've kind of modified it to fit the business world, and I'm on board with it to the extent that it represents the heart of what the New Testament teaches, because Jesus himself modeled what it meant to be a servant leader. And he told his disciples to do the same. The book of Matthew and Mark record Jesus saying, in fact, this happened after a, a, a little dispute. I mean, the disciples are human, right? They were having an argument about which one of them is better, greater, or is going to be, you know, on the top of the pyramid. And Jesus turns on them and he says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says that leadership among his followers doesn't follow the same pattern as it does everywhere else. If you want to be great, megas, meaning you have the highest status, you're the MVP, you have the greatest important, importance, then you have to be a servant. Jesus himself put others first even giving his life for us. So being in charge in Christ's kingdom is about your motivation, about your intent instead of power and prestige. It's about looking to the interests of others instead of just looking out for your own. That kind of puts a new face on things, doesn't it? Well, Peter got the message. Here in chapter 5 of his letter, he delivers a master's level class in servant leadership. He says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, as a witness of Christ's suffering, and also who also will share in the glory that is to be revealed. Notice how he started that off. He said, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. He doesn't say, As the one in charge, as your superior. As your apostle, which he was, all of those things, but instead of flexing, he builds a bridge. He establishes rapport. He draws on the relationship that he has with them, elder to elder. You think about that. He's the apostle Peter. He spent at least, what, three years with Jesus himself learning in person. He witnessed Christ's suffering and resurrection. 
And yet he chooses to emphasize what they have in common. We're in this together, is what he says. We get the word elder from presbyteros in Greek, also where we get the word Presbyterian. And elders were appointed by the apostles and other senior leaders of the early church as people received the gospel and they began regularly meeting in little house churches. And even though the term elder hints at a distinction in age, it's really more describing teacher or describing leaders in the early church. Who's that today? Well, life today obviously is a lot different than it was 2,000 years ago, even though we still have probably more in common with people than what we realize. And the same is true when it comes to church structure. So are we talking in today's world, today's age, about senior pastors? Yes. What about youth pastors? Yes, I mean, probably. What about church chairs? Yes. What about the church leadership team here at Cascade Covenant Church? Absolutely. Oh, wait a second. Are you scared now? I, I, whenever we ask people to serve on the leadership team, uh, either at this church or other churches that I've been, been at, um, there is an appropriate level of like, wow, you want me to do that? Um, and yet we always have to like soft sell it because I don't want to freak people out, right? They'll all turn in their resignations after I give this message. Like, that's what you expect? Now, the early church didn't have the division of labor um, like we do here in modern times. The New Testament left us a very flexible blueprint on how that can look throughout time. Pretty wise. So the early church didn't have, you know, music pastors and children's education directors and like all these different things that we have. What they did have and what we hold in common is that there was people who were responsible for spiritual leadership. And so today we would say that's people in the local church that they've been recognized and affirmed as leaders. And so the way this text is written is with this understanding that there are people called by God. At that time, they were appointed by the actual apostles, but they were affirmed by the people. People recognized, yeah, you're called and gifted to this. And they were called elders. You know, in the early church, there were those who were formally recognized as elders, leaders, but there was probably also an informal group of elders, you know, the people who had the most life experience. And uh, those people would have been esteemed and respected too. I mean, it's not unlike our Native American populations or indigenous groups and tribes where, you know, being a, an elder is something that's both an informal group, but then it's also a specific group as well. And being an elder in the days of the Apostle Peter wasn't solely based on age. Life experience was important, but you may remember the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, and he told him, don't let people look down on you because of your age. We were to presume that Timothy was a lot younger than the people that he was leading. So he was an elder, even though he wasn't the eldest. You understand? However, being especially young in age was probably more an exception than the norm. So the Apostle Paul, 
gives both his uh, disciples, Timothy and Titus, a list of qualifications for choosing elders. He says, find people who are high in character, full of integrity. Find, uh, we want people in leadership who are faithful to their spouse. They're good parents. They're not quickly angered or given to drunkenness. They're hospitable and self-controlled. He has this whole list of traits that he gives in 1 Timothy and also in Titus. We still use a lot of those traits as guidance for church leaders today. And for the Apostle Paul, he mentions the elder's role is one of encouraging sound doctrine, is what he says, and refuting those who oppose it. So this sounds kind of like preaching and teaching or a function of that. It's also encouraging faith among those in God's family. Peter takes a little bit different tack. He urges his church or people in these churches, the leaders to be shepherds, shepherds of God's flock. That's basically their job description. Well, shepherds, we mostly only talk about them during Advent, right? You know, shepherds are part of the Christmas story. We have kids dress up in, you know, shepherd gear with a staff and, you know, march through during, during Advent. That's the only time of the year that I can ever remember talking about shepherds. And we're quick to point out that shepherds <clears throat> aren't necessarily the scions of, you know, industry and business in the New Testament world, are they? No, they're very low on the social pecking order which as I was writing this message this week, I was like, I wonder if Peter intended that as part of this metaphor too. Be shepherds, right? Be, be really low on the social pecking order. And, uh, that, you know, I make fun of that because in different parts of the country, like, people view pastors much differently. And our part of the country, we're actually really biblical. We view pastors really low on the book. Matt's laughing because he's been a pastor too. Um, not, not altogether true. Um, but biblically, being a shepherd, this is what Peter, I'm so off on a tangent, why Peter uses this as a metaphor is because the people of Israel had this image. They were, you know, from a farming world, an agrarian society, and so they understood this metaphor. I'm not sure that we still have this really tight connection to it. But throughout the Bible, the relationship between the leaders of Israel and the people that they were responsible to lead is often described metaphorically as shepherd-like. I mean, even God. You think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. So this is an incredibly important image. And shepherds are meant to care for and watch over their flocks. They help them avoid danger that they might not even be aware of. It's a, a very, very important role. And so the prophets, as you read through the, the Old Testament, the prophets kind of latch on to this, this whole motif that, that leaders are to be like shepherds. Jeremiah is very critical of Israel's leaders, and he calls them corrupt shepherds. Ezekiel also very frustrated with the level of leadership among God's people, declares that God would rescue his people from selfish shepherds. I'm starting to think twice about my job choice here, right? 
Zechariah, I mean, the list goes on, speaks about a caring shepherd being replaced by a worthless and uncaring shepherd. Okay, so there's, there's some expectations for the kind of shepherding that's supposed to happen among God's people, and it isn't. So taken as a whole, the, the Old Testament anyway, there's a, at least as it relates to shepherds, there's themes of corruption, selfishness, uncaring. Those would be major leadership issues. Leaders aren't doing their job the way they're supposed to. And so maybe that's why Jesus looks at the crowds at one point and he has compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, he says. This is in Matthew 9. Like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus himself is described as what? The good shepherd. He told a parable once about leaving the 99 sheep behind in search of the one that was lost. This is an image about how God care about how Jesus cares about the one sheep that wanders away. He cares for everyone. It emphasizes how deeply God looks after his people. So like it or not, the Bible over and over and over and over again describes God's people as God's flock, also known as sheep. So a couple of years ago, uh, I was really surprised uh, during that really difficult time that we had a couple of years ago. You might remember it. And it took me by surprise when one of my very committed Christian friends was disgusted by, you know, things that were happening out there. And he says, you know, people are just a bunch of sheep. And I looked at him and really struggled to hold back. I, I did. But I, I really just wanted to say, you know, the Bible calls you a sheep too. Right? I mean, we're, we're all sheep. And there's, reason, there's reasons for that. If you grew up on a farm, you're well aware of just how brilliantly intelligent sheep often are. <laughs> but like it or not, we're sheep. We're God's sheep. And over all of his sheep, God calls, appoints, and trusts their care to overseers, a.k.a. shepherds, a.k.a. elders. And what motivates them to be shepherds really matters, according to Peter. First motivation is this. You have to have a willing heart. Chapter 5, verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. It's the ultimate attitude check. Why are you doing this? Is it to please your parents or your grandparents? You know, to continue a, a family tradition? Is it because this has always been a dream of yours? Is it because no one else will do it? Peter says that it should be done willingly. Willingly. You know, the willingness, in my experience, has more to do with the phrase that comes after it. As God wants you to be. My entire life, as I can trace back to very, very, very early on where the idea that God wanted me to serve as a pastor um, there was a lot of resistance to that idea. 
The willingness, in my experience, has more to do with submitting to what God's asking me to do. Bringing my will into alignment with his. You know, God, I would rather go over there and find one of those prestigious jobs, right? No, God's asking me to tend his flock. And the key phrase in all of that is whose flock is it? It's God's flock. Um, as, as pastors, often when we get together and we're talking to each other, you know, I catch myself saying, my church, my church, my church, my congregant, my congregant, my congregant, which, you know, people know what you mean. But sometimes I have to check myself. It's not my church. It's God's church. And it's really, really, really easy for me and other pastors to feel too responsible for what's happening at their church, both for the good things that happen and the bad things that happen. It's not their church. It's God's church. We all are his people, his flock. He has asked some of us to perform a particular role, which is important. So what exactly is God asking elders to do? Well, he's asking them to exercise oversight. Isn't that just a really uh, attractive phrase? Right? He says, watch over in the NIV. If you look at other translations, they, they say exercise oversight. It means to watch over, to give attention to. It's kind of very broad. And maybe that's why Peter brings in some of the imagery of shepherding. You never know from day to day what's going to happen, but you stay near the sheep. You know, the longer that I serve as a pastor, the more I've realized that the scope of my job, you know, like, hey, what's your job description? And I love, I love corporations and, and, and all the people that work in them, but I'm jealous because corporations have high, very tightly defined lanes, right? Here's your lane, stay in it, that's some other department's job. Well, you know, in ministry organizations like churches and nonprofits, you know, there's not, there's not always the resources there to hire someone for that department, and so someone else takes that on, or you take it on. And, and like over time, the scope of your job just gets wider and wider and wider, and so it's easy to get distracted. You get distracted by other ideas that you want or that other people want, other expectations. You know, you should do this, I should do this. It all learns, or it leads to a lot of fatigue and burnout in the end. Or a lot of just running around firefighting different hot spots, trying to keep it all from burning down. And so as a shepherd, I've learned to frequently ask, God, what would you have me do? Is this what you want me to do? It takes honesty. Am I doing this because I feel like I have to, or am I willing? Second motivation Peter puts out is like, uh, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. In the early church, the elders were often compensated for their service. That might come as a surprise to many of you. So were the apostles. You know, Paul was kind of the exception. He chose to support himself. So Peter here isn't against elders being paid. In fact, he was likely, likely being financially supported by the church himself. But in being a church leader, he's saying, are you motivated to serve because of the money you can make or for your enthusiasm for ministry? Now, in the Seattle area, this might be a little shocking, you know. I mean, really, how rich are you going to get serving a church? But that's exactly what Peter's talking about. 
your reason for serving as a pastor or in spiritual oversight in a church isn't to serve the money. It's to serve the people that God's entrusted to you. You know, you should, not for dishonest gain, you should do this eagerly. It's about the impact that you can make. And so you have to continually ask yourself, you know, whose kingdom are you building here? Are you building yours or God's? And you should know that in, you know, years and years and years of interacting with a lot of other pastors, you know, I, I've met people, even in our church here, who said, you know, yeah, I was, I was at this church a while ago, and it, I felt like the pastor was trying to fleece the flock. This is the phrase that was used. It's like, you know, I actually don't personally know a lot of pastors, or maybe any, that I would say, oh, I, I just kind of wondered if they were in it for the money. But, but we've all seen the egregious abuses, haven't we? They're the folks who make it on TV and social media. And, and Peter, it's a, it's a problem as, as old as the church. Peter's saying, hey, that shouldn't be your motivation. Third motivation, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The best leadership in the church, and maybe anywhere, is the person who leads by example. The worst leadership in the church, and maybe anywhere, is the person who loves being the boss. We've all worked under or for people who just love telling others what to do, haven't we? Amen. Lording it over also could be translated as domineering. That's what's happening here. It's borderline abusive. Peter wonders, are you a church leader motivated by a desire for more power and influence or by the impact your life will make on others? And so while all this is specifically talking about leadership within the church body, you can see the easy extension of all this into other spheres of life. I mean, how many of us, people are just motivated by the power and the authority and the influence that they have, and they chase after it. And Peter's saying, you have to check yourself. That's, gonna, that's actually going to hurt the church in the long run. So if that's about church leaders... What does Peter have to say to everyone else? He says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. He says, submit to your elders. That's easy, isn't it? Now, we're proud individuals. Being confident and able to determine our own path is something that we cherish. I think if most of us, and maybe I'm just projecting myself on everyone else, correct me if I'm wrong, we probably struggle with that word. Some of us might even be triggered by that word. Submit literally means order yourself under, according to a given relationship. So in this letter of Peter's, He's instructed all of us to submit to the government, be a good citizen. He's told indentured servants to submit to their masters. He's told wives to submit to their husbands. And here he asked the younger ones to submit to the elders. By younger ones, I mean, he's talking, you got church leaders and then 
everyone else. How are we supposed to hear that today? Well, if we understand submission as some sort of like subhuman existence or subservience, you know, that the congregation always has to go along with the plans and the programs of the pastors and the church leadership team, you know, what a world that would be, right? That's not what he's saying. If we're to understand this as living orderly under the leadership of our, you know, church leaders, then yeah, that's what he means. Scott McKnight, a biblical scholar, he comments on this. He's like, elders are to exercise leadership, congregants are to follow their lead. There's this back and forth, give and take trust that's involved. And remember, he did just tell leaders that if they're motivated to lead because they enjoy telling others what to do, then they're not fit to serve. So in today's world, this is pretty touchy, isn't it? Leadership and authority. You know, there's been a pendulum throughout the decades and centuries of culture tending towards, you know, totalitarian authoritarianism, and then kind of where we are now where it's every individual for itself. So when able church leadership is present in a church, it leads to health and effectiveness. But we know we live in a fallen world. We know we're all people who are in process, who are redeemed and being transformed in Christ. And sometimes leaders make mistakes. Sometimes congregants make mistakes. And maybe that's why Peter says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. You see, when we have a difference of opinion in church, the first thing required is a spirit of humility. That goes both for pastors and elders and for church members. Uh, Scott McKnight, the scholar I just mentioned, he writes this in his commentary on 1 Peter. He says, At times, an individual church member will disagree with the pastor and will want to pursue an alternate course of direction. Interesting way of saying that. Such a decision by a member ought to be done with humility, in conversation with the elders, and in such a way that it's not disruptive, he puts in parentheses, unless necessary. So the temptation is always for leaders to, to complain about people. They're, they're not following our lead. And the temptation for church members is to say, they're not listening to me, those church leaders. And so each side just continues to shout louder and louder. It escalates. That's when you slow it down. Let these situations be undertaken in a spirit of humility. And even if the other person crosses the line, just this week, a friend of mine, he's a pastor in Southern California. Um, I was talking to him about a situation that, that just happened like on Tuesday. And there had been a person who had kind of fallen on a different side of a decision that the church had made, um, very much disagreed with the decision. And there had been lots and lots and lots of conversation about it, and it kind of just came down to, well, the church leadership, the pastors, the leadership team felt like this is where the Holy Spirit has called us, and this is the decision that we've made, and we're not changing that decision. We can't change that decision. And the person was like, I feel like y'all made the wrong decision, that you weren't listening to the Holy Spirit. And so 
that person then decided to post on social media, which then it just escalated into this who knows what. But the thing the church leadership didn't do, which I thought, that was great, is they pumped the brakes. And they said, you know, we don't need to get on social media and blast that person and tell everybody our side of the story. Maybe we can de-escalate this and have more conversation. Let's see where that goes. I thought that was an excellent example of all of you clothing yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And while we may not change the other side's opinion, we're talking about this as all members of God's flock. It makes all the difference in how we view and treat and love one another even when we disagree. And maybe it comes down to, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Maybe it comes down to the church member saying, I'm just going to submit even though I might see it differently. I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is guiding our leadership. And you know, sometimes it might be maybe the Holy Spirit is calling you somewhere else. It does take discernment. But that's what we do together. And the whole goal of that process is that God's glorified rather than churches being torched and groups of people being divided. And I mean, that's all ugly. We've seen that happen, haven't we? So as far as I'm concerned, this passage in 1 Peter, which most of us probably read right over it to get to the end, might be one of the most applicable in today's hour, in today's world. It's about clothing ourselves with humility towards one another. It's about being in church leadership for the right motivations. It's about submitting, not just one group, but submitting mutually to one another. And when that happens, Christ is glorified. Please join me in prayer. Lord, this is one of those that's real hard. At least it feels real hard to get right and really easy to get wrong. And we all like to take it to the worst possible case scenario. And what if this happened or what if this happened? And I don't know that that's always useful. Maybe we need to kind of start with baby steps first. We're all strong-willed or at least most of us. I speak for myself, Lord. I'm a strong-willed person, and I often think I'm right. And so when someone has another opinion, especially on something that really matters, it's hard to listen. Help me to do that. Help us to do that in a spirit of servant leadership to put others' needs ahead of even our own. But let us also have the confidence and even the conviction, Lord, when your spirit has told us, when we feel like we have heard and discerned from you, to not just cave in to the approval to others, but to sincerely and humbly follow you, Lord. I pray for your church. I know in the United States, it's ugly right now. It feels pretty divided. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
I pray for unity. I pray for humility. I pray for uh, people taking ownership and forgiving. Lord, it's for your glory. And we can suffer together with you because you've suffered for us and by your wounds we're healed. We pray this, Lord, in your powerful name. Amen. Let me invite our worship team forward for our closing song together.